Um, good morning, everyone. It is so good to be back with y'all. Like Susan said, this semester has not started off as I expected it to, or really anyone I think expected it to. Um, but I am so thankful for this time together and for the chance um, to engage in a conversation relating to our overall theme, Rescued for Relationship. And today we have arrived at the heart of Paul's letter to the Philippians, and really what is one of my favorite passages in all of scripture what is referred to as the Christ hymn in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And not only is this passage physically at the midway point of the letter, but it does seem like Paul's call for the Philippians, right, his desire for them to with joy seek to live in Christian unity and hope following the pattern of Christ's death and resurrection has all been building up to this moment where Paul reminds us what story we are a part of. And I feel like every time I've lectured or come up here, I'm always talking about story um, maybe it's my version of Brian always having the sermon application of corporate worship. <laughs> but <laughs> um, anyway, last year, right, we followed the Israelites from captivity to the promised land. And one of our main takeaways was to see our lives through the lens of the bigger narrative and story that we as Christians are participating in. To see ourselves in the story of rescue, wilderness, and promise. The narrative told, it, told through the Pentateuch that no matter what, God is making a way um, to dwell among his people, both personally and permanently. And here, the narrative theme is exactly the same. Early in chapter 1, um, verse 6, Paul writes, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Paul reveals here that he is living in this covenant story. He's seeing his life in God's narrative, which creates a perspective that brings hope and therefore allows him to find joy even in his suffering. And here in chapter two, he shares with us part of the story and specifically the role that Jesus has been called to play in it. And he does so with brevity and authority, poetry and clarity. He draws attention to the way that God has most recently dwelt among his people in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God dwelling among his people, not in tabernacle or temple, but in flesh. These verses are um, called the Christ hymn first because they reveal to us so much about the nature of Christ. And secondly, because there's just a lot of speculation and a lot of ink has been used up debating the nature of this text. Its structure and its poetic language in the original Greek makes it stand out to scholars who study all of Paul's writings. It's different than his other writings, so questions get raised about its origin and its genre. Do these words predate Paul? Was it a hymn that early Christians knew and Paul is referencing? Is it original to Paul and a poetic synopsis of his theology a hymn that he's introducing or maybe he previously introduced. It's a really interesting conversation, but we'll let scholars debate that, figure that out for us, and instead we'll focus on the theology Paul is endorsing and the purposefulness it has both for the Philippians and for us. So let's look at it together. Um, Philippians 2, 5 through 11 reads, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God had highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." So this passage begins with a call from Paul to have this mind among yourselves. But what exactly is the mind that Paul is referring to? 
It is the united mind he defines at the start of this chapter. Just like in verse 2, in verse 5, Paul is calling the Philippians to think the same thing. And it's not the last time he will do so. You can see in your handout that the same verbiage is going to be used again in chapter 4, calling for unity among two women who are clearly in conflict with, conflict with one another. Unity is important to Paul. And last week, I just watched it yesterday, um, and the evening Bible study, or I guess it was two weeks ago for y'all, <laughs> Susan yeah. did such a beautiful and convicting job of painting a picture of what unity really means for us as a church. If for some reason you missed it, I highly recommend tracking down the recording in your email or on the website because just wow, all of us last night were floored, so thank you, Susan, for that. Um, Paul sets out a high vision for the idea of unity that is essential to the partnership and fellowship he is endorsing and encouraging throughout this letter. The partnership that Paul is alluding to is a bond of giving and receiving. It is a claim of mutual dependence, sharing, participation, and love. Um, if you don't know, I'm in graduate school for counseling right now. And in the counseling world, we're pretty against this idea of like codependent relationships for a myriad of valid reasons, right? Uh, not something that I would normally endorse. But here, uh, there's some pointing going on. Um, but here, the fellowship that Paul is describing is in many ways codependent. Unity comes because Paul does not see himself as more than the Philippians. They are all partakers of the same grace bonded by God. God meets, the need, God meets Paul's needs through the Philippians, right? We see him give, the Philippians are giving to Paul financially, they're providing for him community, um, they're meeting his tangible and his physical needs as he's in prison. And in the same way, God is meeting the Philippians' needs through Paul, through his encouragement, through his guidance, through his teaching. Unity as a church is a submission to the mission of God and his good news, and it is a recognition that it takes others to do so. It requires humility and obedience. The body of Christ Paul describes to the Corinthians is the perfect example of this. All have a part to play, and God has given his grace differently, distinctly, and diversely within a church community. But with humility, Paul calls these gifts to be united in purpose. As modern readers, the call is to see our fellowship with one another not merely as gathering together, but as partnering for the sake and spread of the gospel, to be participating together in God's kingdom building. Paul's call to fellowship really is akin to the Fellowship of the Rings that you would read about in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, right? The men in this epic are coming together from different backgrounds. Heck, I'm pretty sure they're even different species. You've got like a dwarf and an elf and some men, hobbits. And there's a history of war and feuding and deep distrust among the people groups and the kingdoms that they represent. They ha all have these expectations and agendas informed by their history, and they all have an instinct for self-preservation and self-preference but they have received a calling higher than their personal judgments and preferences. And their goal is to assist and ensure the success of a mission, and it creates a bond of friendship, trust, sacrifice, and dependence. And this is Paul's vision for the church, a laying down of pride and judgment and agenda for the sake of God's kingdom. What Paul is describing requires humility, obedience, and surrender. And as Susan laid out last week, it's messy, it's really awkward, and it's often uncomfortable but it is what our call as Christians is. But like all callings we receive in the Christian life, God does not just look at us and say, be better, do more, get it together. Instead, through Christ, he first does it himself. He gives us an example to follow. And then he gives us a spirit to stir in us an ability to do that which we cannot do ourselves. And then he gives us the grace to let the process be messy, awkward, uncomfortable, and imperfect. This call to humility and obedience for the sake of the church 
Paul writes, is yours in Christ Jesus, because though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humility and obedience is first given to us in Christ. So in Hollywood or show business, you often hear that, actor, that an actor is employing a strategy or an approach to a role called method acting. People in the business call it the method, which just really sounds kind of pretentious to me, <laughs> like get, on, get with the method, I don't know. Um, but the idea behind it, right, is that you approach um, your role by going above and beyond just portraying a character. In your preparations, in your performance, in your theory, um, you attempt to become them. The actor transforms and makes sacrifices so that they might identify with, understand, and experience the inner motivations and the emotions of the character that they are playing. My favorite kind of spin or spoof of this idea comes from 30 Rock, which I think I told y'all last semester is like kind of the lens with which I view the whole world because I'm so familiar with the show. Um, but there's a character named Jenna Maroney and she is preparing to play the role of a rock star, um, of the rock star Janis Joplin, if you're familiar with her. And she's doing so like in an upcoming biopic. She marches into this room of coworkers and she declares that she will be employing the method, method of acting for the part. What she says means that she's only gonna respond to Janice or Mrs. Joplin. So she like dramatically puts her hand in front of her face <laughs> and she just like goes like this. And she's like, the veil has been drawn. I'm Miss Joplin now. <laughs> and as she's leaving, her coworkers who are known for their pranks suggest that Wikipedia is a great place for her to do research on Janice Joplin. And her coworkers know that Jenna is very gullible and not really research minded. So it will be very easy to mess with her by simply editing Janice Joplin's Wikipedia page as anyone can do. <laughs> and they see how far Jenna is willing to take this idea of method acting and immediately they start editing the page like she's barely even left the room and they write Janice Joplin sped walk everywhere and was afraid of toilets <laughs> and, <laughs> and then the scene cuts and you see Jenna dressed as Janice Joplin and she's speed walking around the office and then she's requesting from someone who works for her the ingredients for her signature cocktail which is buttermilk cherry juice and tequila <laughs> All of this, of course, is made-up information that she's gathered from Wikipedia. It's all really, truly ridiculous and just really funny. But real actors have done some pretty absurd things while employing the method to get into character. I think the most famous example of this is Daniel Day-Lewis, who got two Oscars for it, or maybe even, I think, three Oscars at this point. Um, but when he played a character with cerebral palsy in the movie My Left Foot, he went everywhere during the filming of that movie in a wheelchair. And no matter, um, and then when he was playing Abraham Lincoln in the film Lincoln, he reportedly was signing his text messages as Abe, or I had the people around the set refer to him as Mr. President. <laughs> no matter what patterns, habits, or language they mimic, the method right still has limits. Daniel Day-Lewis can play the role of Abraham Lincoln convincingly, but he can never change his nature to be anything other than Daniel Day-Lewis playing the role of Lincoln. And if I had to guess, I'm pretty sure Lincoln never sent a text message. <laughs> I share all of this with you because what I learned um, from a pastor in Santa Barbara who taught a class on Philippians, his name is Kyle Wells, um, he told us that the language that Paul uses to describe Jesus in verses 5 through 8 is most similar to the language that would have been used to describe an actor in a Roman theater cast to take on a new role. Paul's language mimics that of the theater and I think creates for us a beautiful analogy. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus had a role to play in the drama of humanity. 
what gets translated as found in appearance or taking on the form is the same language and wording historically used for actors taking on a new role. Jesus is the ultimate method actor. In his incarnation, he fully embodies the role he has been assigned, but just like a method actor, he does not abandon his nature. Jesus, as a member of the Trinity, is by nature divine. He is very God of very God, yet he surrenders that by stepping onto the human stage and playing the role of Adam. The incarnation is one of the greatest mysteries of the Christian faith, but it is also central to making sense of everything else. It is God again making a way to dwell among his people, a desire that is a consistent marker of God's character and relationship with us, established in creation and remains true to this day. As Revelation 21 states, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. In the incarnation, an embodied God enters the world um, enters the world that he made, but he did so in the form of man, playing Adam's part. Kyle Wells put it this way. He said, Jesus is the man that God became when God decided to become a man. So when we read that Jesus emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, we're not being told that Jesus surrendered his divinity. Instead, as David Chapman puts it in his Philippians commentary, Jesus's emptying himself involved a change in his role and his status rather than in his essential nature or in his attributes. Jesus does not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he takes on a role that allows him to use his privilege for the advantage of others. He humbly plays Adam's part as it was made to be played, obedient to God. And after the fall, right in Genesis 3, really what we see in the whole Old Testament is stories about prophets and priests and kings who try to play Adam's role as it was written and designed by God, our playwright and director, so to speak, to be. Individuals trying to live perfect obedience, um, live in perfect obedience and in perfect communion with God, but instead find themselves in situations of betrayal, deceit, adultery, doubt, and rebellion. Instead of obedience and humility, in the Old Testament characters we see, see, we see sin. Paul explains this in Romans 5. He argues that when Adam messed up the part in Genesis 3, it impacted every subsequent performance, all creation affected by sin. In the fall, Adam sought to be like God. Adam pushed himself onto the center stage, trying to take God's role for his own glory and sake. He tried to take a part that wasn't his and forsook God's call and design. In contrast, when we see Jesus play Adam's role, we see him step out of the privilege his very being possesses and instead steps into a role that deserves punishment. And he plays the role so faithfully that he takes the punishment on as his own. As Chapman puts it, Jesus willingly proceeds to associate himself with the lowliest and most painful death in order that we may benefit from his sacrificial act. That is true humility. Death is the punishment for Adam's pride and vainglory, his disobedience. Yet Jesus is obedient to the role to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that is a lot to wrap your mind around, but I think we can take away from this passage and the idea of Jesus playing Adam's role, um, kind of two main things. First, um, the first point is kind of hidden in that long quote that's found on the first page of your handout. It's from um, Andy Crouch, who for a while was the, um, I think, editor of Christianity Today. And it's in his book called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. Just as a quick aside, um, I got to read this book while I was working campus ministry in Knoxville, and I could not recommend it higher. Um, it's one of the most influential books I've ever read in a culture that I think is so much more preoccupied with how to obtain and keep power than wisely use it. Crouch has got some groundbreaking and biblical ideas about true power as a means of flourishing. Anyway, anyway um, 
Here he writes that the priorities of Jesus are to spend his privilege and not to conserve it. And that priority is precisely because he was the true son of man, the true image bearer and the icon of the true God, that he had not the slightest interest in gripping tightly to status and privilege. At the heart of God's character is self-sacrificing love. To recognize the divine among us is, um, we are not looking for displays of privilege, but instead we're looking for the surrendering of rights for the sake of others. When we list the attributes of God, self-sacrificing should be on the list, right along with powerful, just, loving, merciful. God's very nature is on display in Jesus not counting himself as God. In Jesus's weakness and the shame of the cross, in his choosing to be a servant, God is at his most powerful because it is here that salvation is accomplished for us. And then the second point is that Paul's call for the Philippians and for us is to imitate God as he imitates us. In Jesus, we see that humanity made in the image of God was designed to imitate God's self-giving nature. Humility is, this, is central to the mind that is ours in Christ Jesus. Jesus playing Adam's role submitted to authority. He did not insist on his own rights, but instead utilized them for others. It is a call to recognize the privilege we have through our relationships, through our abilities, our connections, our wealth, our citizenship. It is given to us for the sake of others. When I worked as a counselor at camp a few, um, well, not more than a few summers ago, many summers ago, um, on a few occasions, right, a camper's family would give you a gift at the end of the session, usually a gift card. And the policy was that you would turn it into the camp director, but after surrendering it, the camp director would give it back to you with the charge that you were blessed to be a blessing, that you were to share it with some of the people that you worked with. And this is how Paul argues that we, um, we are to follow the example of Christ. Um, it is something we surrender our privilege. It is something we surrender and we use for others. Love of others is both how we become like God and how we experience our salvation. What of our upbringings and our life circumstances can be used for blessing others through empathy, understanding, and patience? Does your experience create a way for you to sit with others sharing more than just platitudes with them? What of your unique gifts can be used to bless the unique needs of your neighbors and your church? How can we view our lives through the lens of fellowship, seeking to build God's kingdom instead of our own? I encourage you to ask God to reveal these things to you. I find it so fitting that we are getting to study this passage together right now, even with the delay, um, because if we think about the church calendar, we have just entered the season of Lent. Lent is the 40 days between Ash Wednesday and Easter that for the historic church has been marked by this intentional drawing near to God through prayer, through fasting, through repentance, and self-denial. Um, and Sheree Harder, who is the president of Trinity Forum, which is um, this kind of Christian thought and leadership organization that I really admire in Washington, Washington D.C., um, she puts her thoughts on Lent this way in a podcast that I recently listened to. She says, of course, and by this she's speaking to the practices I just listed above, right? Prayer, fasting, repentance, and self-denial. That is a hard sell in our time. Embracing spiritual discipline has never been easy, but in a cultural context where denying ourselves, our desires is not just seen as odd, but repressive or even harmful, humbling ourselves through spiritual disciplines and walking these ancient paths can seem more daunting than ever. But far from being the exclusive providence of medieval monks or cloistered mystics of some far away time and place, these disciplines are for everyone and offer through embodied practice a more deepful and joyful, joyful following in the ways of Jesus. In a treat yourself world, nothing about self-denial really sounds fun. 
And on top of that, we are coming off of a year in which we were denied so much. Um, not just a year, years in which we were denied so much. Our plans, our health, our routine, our freedom, our connections, our sense of normalcy, our sense of time. Like what really even is a year anymore? I don't, I'm not sure. And as Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And I think we are all a little heart sick coming out of this season. I'm tempted to look at Paul and say, don't you think we have surrendered enough? But the hymn does not end there. Jesus's role continues and there is more to the story. Verse nine goes on to read, therefore God had high, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One of the earliest lessons I remember learning as I studied scripture was to always pay attention to the word therefore and to ask what is the, the therefore therefore? <laughs> Anyone else? Yeah. <laughs> so here the therefore reveals to us that Jesus's descent, his taking on of the role of Adam, the form of man is not how or where the story ends. The message Jesus taught throughout scripture is that those who humble themselves will be exalted and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And when we put it in the context of Jesus's story, we realize that Jesus was teaching this from a position of faith. In his ministry, he hadn't yet experienced this, but he trusted that this was the way that, of God and that this would be the pattern of his own role in his own life. Jesus in his humanity knows that this is not an easy calling to receive or to live out but he trusts in the same way we are called to trust, that the pattern of Christian living is always death than life, burial than resurrection. It is the seed buried in the ground that becomes a tree. God as author and director reverses the ending here, and Jesus is exalted for playing his part. The way up is the way down. It is in faith that Jesus as a man walks in humility and obedience because he trusts that God is at work. And Paul's quote in verse 11 reveals to us how long God has been at work establishing pattern, this pattern of redemption and servant leadership. In the prophet Isaiah, we are introduced to this character, the suffering servant, who holds tension, um, this tension right of suffering with hope and redemption and restoration. Verse 11 of um, Philippians 2 quotes the passage about the suffering servant. And you can see um, it reflected in Isaiah 45, 22 through 33, or 23, sorry. Um, the pattern has long been established that what we are called to sacrifice in this life is nothing compared to the glory that awaits. But as we wait, as we long for redemption and renewal, we learn in the Christ hymn that as Kyle Well states, it is against God's nature to be holding out on us. His very nature is to pour himself out for us in self-sacrificial love. God's character is for us and for our good. My grandmother was born in 1934 right in the heart of the Great Depression. And like many in her generation, she carried this waste not mindset her whole life. She was not like a hoarder or anything like that, but let me tell you, there was not a leftover she would ever let get thrown away. Honestly, in some ways, her long and mostly healthy life is a testament to the idea that expiration dates are mere suggestions. <laughs> Making lunch, if you were to ask her what she wanted, she would never have a direct answer. Instead, the reply was, well, what are we trying to get rid of? <laughs> um, I knew she wanted something specific, but no, what are we trying to get rid of? That was the goal. 
And she, um, she played this role um, so, like, much that we kind of lovingly coined the term martyr mom to describe her. <laughs> um, faithfully, her whole life, even when she was in hospice care, this is how she was. And sometimes it just felt so unnecessary. It really would have been okay to throw away that last lone slice of turkey or toss the last serving of soup that she had been eating every night for a week. She even composted, so it wasn't like leftovers were truly completely going to waste. <laughs> and I share this about my grandmother because I think this idea of suffering through leftovers is what we picture self-denial and surrendering of our rights to look like. This vain exercise that at the end of the day isn't relevant or needed or won't solve or fix anything, but instead will just have to be repeated again. Kind of like laundry. I remember having a realization as a child the first time I was asked to do my laundry um, and realizing that by wearing clothes while doing my laundry, I was already making more laundry to do. <laughs> and I was not happy about it at age like nine, and I'm still not happy about it. <laughs> in the mundane and in the profound results um, of humility and obedience, it is not an insisting of our own rights, but instead seeking the good of others. Um, and we want to know why. Like, what's the point of doing all this? And as God's children, we are not given the why for each particular instance, but we are given the big picture why. As Paul writes in Romans 8, the Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The pattern of Christ is death than life. We have hope in the story and the trajectory of all things that just as Christ was exalted, so we too shall be. Again, in Christ's role, we have the assurance that it, um, that it is against God's nature to be holding out on us. His very nature is to pour himself out in, for us in self-sacrificial self love. The narrative told from the beginning of scripture is that no matter what, God is making a way to dwell among his people personally and permanently. He has promised us this in relationship. And there's so much more I could say about this, but I wanted to close with practical encouragement about discerning what this looks like practically for us. What we learn from Paul in these passages is that for the sake of the gospel, self-preservation and self-defense are not Christian virtues. But if you're anything like me, you're thinking to yourself, Hmm, that sounds really challenging, and I have no idea practically what that looks like. What is the balance between pouring myself out for others and making sure that I have something to pour out? In our humanity, we do have to be aware of our own limitations. I would love for someone to write a guide for my life, like, is this selfish or is this soul care? Um, or am I being sinful or is it just that you're in grad school and you're limited <laughs> um, to help me discern these things? Our roles and the needs of those around us are always changing. Creating margin for others, following authority placed over us, seeking to be of the same mind with our brothers and sisters in Christ, not insisting on our own rights, this requires wisdom. And as we seek to follow Christ's example, we find ourselves in situations that are much more gray than they are black and white. What does it look like to draw boundaries in an unhealthy relationship and have this mind among yourselves? What does it look like to instill responsibility in your child um, or, do some, or doing something for them so that you're not late to school or late to an obligation? What does it look like to confront someone who sinned against you? What does it look like to rest and seek solitude after a long week to recharge? Or is it a better choice to go out with friends? Saying yes um, 
what what does it look like right to say yes or to say no to a request to help in a season where you're just on the brink of burnout as we seek to determine god's will not only for the sake of doing what is right but also doing what we have been called to do we recognize that we are often put in this position of indecision and if you're like me you can get a little antsy there as a task-oriented doer sometimes i feel like it would be nice if god just told us or made it clear to us what we are supposed to do but this desire for a clear sign in me, if I'm being honest, is also a masked attempt to absolve myself from being responsible for my actions. In my sinful heart, I am seeking some freedom from responsibility if I don't like the outcome of what happens. Like the deal that my mom and I had in high school that I could always use her as an excuse to get out of something that was, I was uncomfortable with or I just didn't want to do. I think I often relate to God that way. And I can't help but think of Harry Potter in this, and now I'm realizing that I've made a Lord of the Rings and a Harry Potter reference in the same lecture, so sorry. Um, anyway, in book four of the Harry Potter series, we are introduced to three unforgivable curses, one of which is the imperious curse that places the victim completely under the caster's control. And as Harry and his classmates are learning about it by um, the professor who is using some very questionable classroom antics teaching 14 year olds illegal curses but that's a whole nother story um he demonstrates it on a spider and we see the spider at like with the wand right it dances it bounces around the room all to the whim of what the professor is wanting it to do and later harry is put under the curse himself um, and his every move is being dictated dictated for him and to the master of the curse he is living in perfect obedience and perfect humility and his experience of the sensation is not what we would expect. The book reads, it was the most wonderful feeling. Harry felt a floating sensation as every thought and worry in his head was wiped away, leaving nothing but a vague, untraceable happiness. He stood there feeling immensely relaxed, only dimly aware of everyone watching him. Being told exactly what to do eliminates all of Harry's anxiety. Um, and I think I often want God to, God's will to work like this, like the imperious curse in my life. So that I might be without anxiety because I know that every move is under control of someone else. And not just anyone but God, who I trust, right? And who I love to be for me. And ultimately that trust in God's good and sovereign, good sovereignty, um, it should create for me a beautiful reassurance that frees me from anxiety. Jesus tells us this in Matthew 6. Paul will tell us this later in Philippians. But if God's will worked like the imperious curse, there would be no space for faith, no space for mystery, and most importantly, no space for relationship. Ultimately, though God desires for us to relate to him with perfect obedience and humility, what he rescued us first was what he rescued us for first was relationship with him. The obedience and the hum humility he receives perfectly in Christ and he applies to us. We walk with wisdom, seeking obedience and humility, but we only do so in the context of relationship, not perfection. God knows that our attempts will be messy they'll be awkward and they'll be uncomfortable. He knows our limits and he knows the lingering impact of sin. He knows we won't get it right every time. And in Christ, he made a way for that to be okay, but he also made a way for that to be impermanent. When all things are made new, we will walk in humility and obedience. But until then, we have the Holy Spirit to guide us and the invitation from James 1, 5 to ask for wisdom from God, who gives generously to all without finding fault so that we might live in the biblical story and recognize Jesus's role on our behalf. Our call as Christians is not about our ability to read God's mind and perfectly discern his call to self-sacrificing unity and fellowship, but instead it is a call to seek to have God's story in mind as we navigate what that which he has ordained. 
Might our prayers for wisdom be answered with the building of God's kingdom in and among and in spite of us. Amen.